morning and thank you again for the opportunity to voice God's word. We have been studying a few sayings on uh, hard sayings, the hard lessons that may be within the Bible. Let me straighten this up just for a second because I fell off kilter there. Um, hard sayings and we have been in Hebrews chapter 5. We drew inspiration here from verses 11 through 14. Um, first of all, thank you, Sean, for that last song selection. I would encourage each and every one of you, if you have your sword with you today, let's sharpen it. Um, and so get your Bible out. We'll be flipping through Hebrews and some other verses, some other passages in the Bible. But um, I'm, a, I'm a big proponent of wielding our swords. I love this screen. I love what's up here. I think it keeps us... Um, focused and keeps us aligned on where we're at and helps you progress and, and hopefully follow the things I'm saying, especially when I trip up and slip and, and stumble. Because I'm not divinely inspired like the writers of the Bible were, but um, I am inspired by the reading and study of the Word. So I love this screen, but um, I love to hear those pages turn and to see those pages turn and I was sharing my thoughts with Greg one night, and I said, you know what? I hope you guys don't take this the wrong way, but for me as a speaker, if I looked out and saw nothing but your top of your heads, I would be very happy because I would know that you're in God's Word and you are digesting something. And um, it's probably not less than often, and Greg or Jimmy look over there, and that's all they see is the top of my head because I'm making notes because something has sparked a memory or made a connection, and I'm jotting those down, or I'm writing that in my Bible, or I'm going there to, um, to make note of something I want to study later. And so that's the awesome responsibility, and the awesomeness of what I get to do this morning is giving word, or giving voice to God's word. So that it hopefully draws out those things that continues to build our foundation. <clears throat> um, I'm pivoting forward. I presented to you last week that um, our study this week would be uh, Christ superior as after the order of Melchizedek. But I'm going to I'm going to pivot forward first. Um, I'm going to present to you what I said would be my final two lessons from this, and. Um, that is tying into, um, goodness, why am I losing my train of thought? Tying in here what it is that was really being um, brought out in the first five chapters as we lead up to why it was a hard saying, because they were dull of hearing, because they were dull, they were dull of hearing, because they hadn't matured um, in their Christianity, and Christ is superior. And so... What I want to establish this morning, or the way I'm going to try to go about bringing this um, all together for us, is looking at, really in depth, who was this written to? And if this book was written to Christians, then those first five verses and the thrust of it being Christ is superior, Christianity is superior, and because Christianity is superior, I recognize salvation is conditional. That is, that things that I do can either help me accept, neglect, or give up my salvation. So if it was written to Christians and the thrust was salvation is conditional, then what do I take away from it? And that brings me to chapter 5 and verses 11 through 14. I have to hold fast to that which I know to be true, and holding fast means I have to grow and I have to mature. So the way I'm proposing in my mind, or supposing that we're going to try to bring this out, is by establishing that. Who was it written to? What was the thrust of that message that was there? And then knowing that, how did they take it? What were they charged to do? And, and how do we move forward? Um, so here's our inspiration once again, Hebrews 5.11, of whom Christ, after the order of Melchizedek, we have many things to say, and they're hard to be uttered. That is, it's hard for us to put it in a way that you're going to readily accept or hear it, because it's hard for us to explain why, because you're dull of hearing. Why are you dull of hearing? Because you haven't matured. You're not ready for the meat. Nonetheless, the writer is going to plow right into that meat in chapters uh, 5 and following. 
In the book of John, we studied that um, there were difficult sayings, difficult lessons in the Bible. In that case, it was difficult because they weren't willing to accept who, who Jesus was. Here in Hebrews, this is written to Christians. I will go ahead and make my proclamation and try to prove it to you here in the, in the next um, several slides and verses. But here, the struggle is not accepting who Jesus is and what he presents and that he is superior, but holding fast to that, given all that they were, were suffering through, the challenges, the struggles, the false teachers, the persuasion, the influence, all that they were enduring, hold fast to that which you know. Christ is superior. Christianity is superior. Don't give up your salvation. The message delivered by the writer would be hard to put into words in a way that they understood it readily and quickly and easily because of the immaturity of their belief. They needed to continue to grow and to develop. All right, well, let's jump right into then who was the book of Hebrews written to and how do, how do we claim that it was written to Christians? How can I make that proclamation using the scripture itself? Let's start in Hebrews um, 3 and verse 1, and I'm going to move around. That's why I said take your sword and keep it with you, and we'll flip back and forth. But in Hebrews 3, verse 1, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. It was written to who? Whose attention was he getting when he said, Wherefore, seeing that you heard all these things in chapter 1, Christ is, Christ is, um, the sustainer, Christ is the creator of all things. Hearing all of that, therefore, holy brethren. Vines defines the word here as brethren could have three meanings for us. Number one, it could have the meaning that we have a family relationship, a familial relationship, right? We were born into the same family. That doesn't fit here. The writer of Hebrews couldn't be writing just to his family doesn't hold up, right? The whole, the whole book wouldn't make sense. So logic would tell us it's not written to his uh, physical family. And so the second way it could be taken or, or applied, brother, brother or brethren, which is plural, could be that of his kinsmen. Could he be writing to fellow Hebrews? And at cursory glance, you might say that is possible that that is who he is written to. But then the book of Hebrews doesn't make sense. It doesn't hold up. Because not the entire Hebrew nation would have accepted and put on Christ yet and would be encouraged and admonished and exhorted to hold fast to that which they had learned. So that doesn't seem to fit. So the only logical conclusion is that when he says it is written to holy brethren, it is written to those who have accepted Christ, who believed him. And so it makes more sense why he was, would encourage them to hold fast um, to that which they have learned and have accepted. We also see in Romans 16, 17, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses, contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, and avoid them. If brethren there were those who were unified, and they were told to mark them who were trying to divide them and to bring in offense, then we understand, and that helps make application here, that the brethren noted here were those who were unified in Christ. Also in 1 Corinthians 1.10, we see the same word, brethren. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no division among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. So again, the logical conclusion here seems to be that when the writer is writing to brethren, he is writing to those who have like-minded faith, those who have accepted Christ and put on Christianity. So first point and first, um, I believe, conclusive evidence that this was written to Christians. Second, they are noted as, um, as sons. Goodness, I did a poor job of noting where that falls. That is not chapters 5 through 7. I thought it was chapter 4. I'm going to read it. Forgive me. I will find it or it will come to us here in, in the following slides. But they are noted as sons here in Hebrews chapters, whatever, whatever chapter, verses 5 through 7. 
And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto my children. My son, despise thou, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourges every son whom he receiveth. If he endureth chastening, God dwelleth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? So the Hebrew writer uses the terminology sons. And again, then we can think through this in our minds. There's only two applications to what it can mean to be a son. That is born of um, the same family, which doesn't fit here. Or those who are sons who are part of God's family who were um, sons through the adoption, which aligns and makes sense. We see in Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7, we studied this somewhat recently. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all, but is under tutors, tutors, goodness gracious, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, which be, that we could be heirs. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, an heir. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. The only logical conclusion here as to why the author would um, use the terminology of sons is that these are of the family of God. These are Christians that are being that the book is being written to. Um, next, in Hebrews 6, we see that this is written to Christians who were exhorted to mature in the doctrine of Christ. And we've read this a couple of times. I'm sorry it feels repetitive. Um, but when I say I'm sorry, I guess what I mean is um, it's important. So nonetheless, we're going to, to bring it up. Let's read 1 through 5 again. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, completeness, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works or of faith toward God of the doctrine of baptisms and laying on of hands and of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal, uh, eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Hebrews 6, verses 1 through 5, the only logical conclusion here is that those being written to were Christians because how could they mature in that which they don't even believe yet, right? How could they mature in the doctrine of Christ if they haven't accepted that doctrine? doesn't make sense. So drawing upon your logic and applying it with the scriptures, the only reasonable assertion there is that have to mature in that which I have already believed. So it only makes sense. This was written to Christians. It was written to Christians. Um, our next point is number four. Written to Christians who were illuminated and suffering for their belief. Hebrews 10 verse 23 says, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. By the way, I think you will hear that terminology, hold fast. I meant to put it in my notes here. I think it's at least 12 times in, uh, in Hebrews, maybe, maybe written in a little bit different form, but the implication of holding fast, clinging to that which you know to be true and have accepted. Um, but hold fast the profession of your faith without wavering in Hebrews 10, 23. He couldn't write that to unbelievers. It wouldn't make sense. There would be nothing to hold fast to unless it were the old law, which then wouldn't make sense with the rest of Hebrews. In Hebrews 10, 32-34, a little later in that chapter, but call to remembrance the former days in which, after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great flight of afflictions, partly whilst ye were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly whilst 
ye became companions of them that were so used. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds and took, listen, took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better place and an enduring substance. This wouldn't be logical if you draw upon your logic, applying it to the verses that you're reading and accepting it for what it is. It wouldn't be logical to suppose that unbelievers would joyfully give up those things which they possessed because they don't have that hope of tomorrow and that hope of a home in heaven. They're not looking forward to that. And so giving up the things that I have now that are temporal, I wouldn't be able to do joyfully. Logic tells us that can't be reality, that it's being written to um, unbelievers or those who were struggling um, to come to an acceptance or a belief of Christ. I'm going to state this in a way that it comes out of love, but I think it's, it's the right way to apply it here. We're drawing upon our logic and asking ourselves to use logical thinking as we read the scriptures here. I know it's not always popular to present the thoughts and the teaching of others who are teaching erroneously, and either they teach erroneously because they are ignorant, when I mean say ignorant, I, I mean that in a loving way, they don't know, they're not educated fully to the truth, or they teach erroneously because they misunderstand or misapply the scriptures, or they teach maliciously because it doesn't fit. If this were, well, there are those who will teach that the first four chapters of Hebrews were written to those who had not accepted Christ. And so it was written in the way it was written because it was trying to convince them they needed to accept Christ. And then Hebrews pivots in chapters 5 and through the remainder, writing to those who were struggling to keep it. Accept that for what it is. It's a perversion of the gospel to try to make it fit to what is coming next. Salvation is conditional. If we can lay out and we can somehow get you in your mind to think, well, it was written, the first four, or first four chapters were written to those who were struggling to accept Christ. Well, now we can twist it so that salvation isn't conditional. Now we can teach Calvinism. We can teach Catholicism. Um, we can teach that only 144,000 have been pre-selected to be saved. I'm getting to my closing, and I shouldn't be. But logically, we've already moved through. Chapter 3, where they were called brethren. You can't make that application to somebody who doesn't believe. You can't push them on in chapter 6 to continue to grow and, and mature and develop if they weren't believing in the first four chapters. Why would you pivot over to verse 6 and start talking, well, now I'm talking to a completely different group of people. It's perversion to teach that way. And so as I move into these next three slides, I'm going to ask you to draw upon your, lo your logic, and I'm going to ask you, in, in the spirit of building that foundation, of truth to make sure we are well grounded but then to be able to teach unto others and to help others re reason through this logically I'm going to ask you to consider those as we look at this is written to Christians then how do I make this application how do I hold to predestination in the, in the way that predestination is uh, presented through um, Calvinism, in that there's nothing I can do. I'm either born lost, and I have no hope of changing that, or I've been predestinated to heaven. There's nothing I can do to change that. Or, um, what what beautiful word do they assign to it? <clears throat> Eternal security. That once saved, I'm always saved. That's reality. Some of these verses that we're going to look at next, 
It don't make sense. It makes no sense why the Hebrew writers spent any time delivering them. All right. I hope I wasn't apologizing for the scripture there. That was not my intent. I guess I was apologizing maybe for my passion that may come out here. Um, salvation is, is conditional. So this was written to Christians who were warned their salvation could slip away to a just recompense. We talked about recompense this morning. It's that which I have earned, good or bad. So the admonition or exhortation or teaching here of the Hebrews writer is that he's writing to Christians and in chapter 3, the, the latter part of chapter 3, 15, verses 15 and on, they need to know that this salvation can be lost. Salvation is conditional. All right, let's look at Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 3 first. We're going to go back to that which we read last week, but let's build our foundation. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by the angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? All right, we ought to give more earnest heed. Listen up, he's saying, knowing where, therefore, starting chapter uh, verse 1 of chapter 2, all these things that you just heard in chapter 1 that Christ is and that Christ is superior, we ought to give more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Why? Because salvation is conditional. Ask yourself, if only 144,000 were already selected to go to heaven, why did they need to give more earnest heed? It makes no sense. If they were predestinated and already chosen, there's nothing I can do to affect whether I am lost or I am bound for heaven, if predestination means that, and that's what I hold and that's what I teach, then why were they told to give more earnest heed? It doesn't make sense. I can't change it, so why do I need to give earnest heed? This is written to Christians. It's written to Christians to let them know salvation is conditional. In this case, the implication is when it says just we might let it slip or we might neglect it, it means we can't just drift along. Work all the way up to chapter 6 and now it makes sense. Work all the way up to chapter 5 and now it makes sense. You're dull of hearing because you're not ready to take of the meat. You haven't matured. Now it makes sense why I need to give more earnest heed. I need to grow and develop. Let's move to the next. Um, oh, well, I included Revelation 3, 15 through 19. I think it fits aptly here with this same thought. Um, God is not pleased with drifting along. That's my statement, not the, uh, but you'll see it in the message. I know thy works. You guys know this when it's written to the church at Laodicea, right? I know thy works, that thou art neither hot nor cold. Sorry. That thou art neither cold nor hot. I don't know if it makes a difference how I read that, but let's read it the way the scripture wrote it. I know that works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and are neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and Knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked? I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou might be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I will rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Why did they need to repent? Because they weren't hot or cold. How did God take it that they were just drifting through, neither hot nor cold? He wants to barf them out of his mouth. It's nasty and vile taste. He just wants to spew it out. So we can't just drift along. Why? Because we may let, let slip that which we first cling to, that we knew to be true, and that that we love. We neglect our salvation. Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 3. 
How do you reason these verses out? Don't answer that out loud. Put this question in your head. How do you reason these two verses out? If you believe or teach that only a literal 144,000 people are going to heaven and there's nothing you can do to accept it or to change that fate. You can't. There's no reason to take heed. There's no reason to be hot or cold. It's already determined for me. Same thing with predestination. How do you reason these verses if you believe or teach that predestination means it's already been ascribed to me that I'm either lost or saved, and there's nothing I can do to accept salvation. There's nothing I can do to give it up. There's no need to take more heed. There's no need to be hot or cold. It's already predestinated for me where I'm going. How do you preach or teach eternal security? I assure you when... When I redo these slides, I'm going to delete that out of there. Let's just call, call it the way it's easily understood. Once saved, always saved. There is eternal security. That's why I'm going to take it out. Where is eternal security? Go back up to 2, 1 through 3. Right? It's in holding fast and not letting slip your salvation. You can have eternal security. If you love me, keep my commandments. But if you try to apply it as once saved, always saved, then again, these passages make no sense. There's no reason to take more, to take heed. There's no reason to be hot or cold. I've already accepted it. There's nothing else I can do now to lose it. That's not true. It doesn't fit with Hebrews 2. We're going to move on here in just a second. We're going to see it as well in the following chapters. It is false teaching, whether that is unintentionally or maliciously. It's false teaching to say that Hebrews was written to unbelievers in the first four chapters and then written to struggling believers in the remaining chapters. They were called brethren. They were called here to, um, to give more earnest heed to those things which they heard and already knew and did not neglect their salvation. They didn't have it if they weren't brothers in Christ, if they weren't Christians. <clears throat> All right, let's move forward. Hebrews chapter 3, written to Christians, exhorted to hold fast to their belief in Christ because salvation is conditional. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and the high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is built by some man, but he that built all things is God. That's why Christ is superior. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of them, those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we? If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm until the end. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. That's a reference back to Psalm 95, which was a reference back to Numbers 13 and 14. Uh, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years. Wherefore, I was grieved with that generation and said, They do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, so I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be any of you and take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast until the end. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, referencing Psalm 95 again, I told you, you'll hear, harden not your hearts several times. Harden not your hearts, as in the provocation for some, when they had heard did provoke. Howbeit, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. Romans 11. Let's go there before, uh, before I make these next, uh, ask you to, to apply logic here. Well, because of unbelief they were broken off, and thou standest by faith. Be not high-minded, but fear, for if God spared not the natural branches, take heed lest he also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell. Severity but toward thee, goodness, 
if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt be cut off. Romans 11 20. We'll, we'll get to that, uh, Lord willing, a week or so from now. Um, how can the writer and the reader be brethren if they weren't united in their belief? Either in chapter 3 or in Romans 11. It doesn't, doesn't make sense. The, the application is not logical. If this was written to any other definition of brother, it doesn't fit here. So given that it was written to Christians and they were unified in Christ, which means they're of one mind and one spirit, um, then how can one look at Hebrews chapter 3 and believe or teach in predestination or once saved, always saved? doesn't fit, right? They wouldn't be um, holy brethren, partakers of the of the heavenly calling. They wouldn't have to hold fast, right? If they weren't yet believers, or they wouldn't have to hold fast if there's nothing I can do to lose that salvation. Once I've accepted it, it's always mine. There's nothing I can do to change it. If that were a reality, there's no no reason for the Hebrew writer to say many, many times, whether that number is 12 or whether that's 10. There's no reason to repeat it. Hold fast. There's nothing I can do to lose it. There's nothing I can do to change it. We know and I recognize that's not reality. And so to, to, to teach it in the first four chapters to make it set my make it um, align with my preconceived idea that salvation is not conditional is to falsely apply scriptures, either in error or maliciously. So they couldn't hold fast to something which they didn't yet believe. In verse 12, if verse 12 indicated these chapters were written to those who didn't believe in Christ or only to those who give lip service, so there is sometimes that, that twist of, of teaching as well. Well, it was written to those who were believers, but they were just believers like in thought. They just they just gave it lip service. They didn't really believe. <clears throat> we all recognize that for what it is. Again, it's trying to twist it so the first four chapters will 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 not uh, negate that which I already hold as a preconceived notion. If it were written to those who just were giving lip service, then they aren't brethren. It doesn't it doesn't fit. It's not logical. They can't hold fast to their belief. It doesn't, it doesn't, for me, this is not one of those hard lessons and hard sayings. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty self-explanatory. It, it's pretty easy. This is written to Christians, believing Christians. This wasn't written to those who hadn't yet accepted. The only logical conclusion is that <laughs> Hebrews is written to Christians, and they are exhorted to remain faithful, lest they lose their salvation. Verses 12 through 16 then harmonize in the teaching that we have to hold fast to that belief in Christ and not fall back on unbelief. That's what was being encouraged to the Hebrews. Don't go back in the midst of adversity and struggle. Don't fall back. Don't give up Christ. Don't give up Christianity and go back to that old law. Christ is superior. That's the thrust and the message. One more. Hebrews chapter 4. Written to Christians, exhorted to hold fast in their belief in Christ, because salvation is, is conditional. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. How could I come short of it if I wasn't yet a believer? For unto us was the gospel preached, as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not, in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying to David, Today, 
after so long a time, as it is said, afterward have spoken of another day, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto, his eye, unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a, high, a great high priest, Christ, that is passed into the heavens, Christ, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted as we, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How can you reason out chapter 4 if you believe or you teach predestination or once saved, always saved? It doesn't fit. If I'm once saved, always saved, then why do I why do I need to, to fear the more? Let us therefore fear. Why? I've already accepted it. There's nothing I can do to give it up. There's nothing I can do to lose it. Why do I have to remain therefore faithful so that I inherit that rest? It's already been prescribed to me. Why do I have to labor therefore in order to obtain that rest? I've already accepted it. I hope you get the point. I know I'm belaboring it over and over and over again. Um, I didn't realize this was so prominent and popular in the way that it was taught, that the first four verses are different, and then, I'm sorry, first four chapters are different, and then in chapter five, you pivot, and it's written to those who are struggling. The entirety of Hebrews is written to Christians who were struggling to keep their faith. Maybe not all of them, but many. And so the Hebrew writer is exhorting them, hold fast to that which you believe. Hold fast. Philippians 2, 12-13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I put that in there because if you go up to the first 12 verses... The plea there is for unity. And in order to have unity, we have to be unified in Christ. And if we are unified in Christ, we have to be unified in our beliefs. And so now we get back to Hebrews 4, and it sheds light and helps connect and makes sense. Hebrews was written to the Christians to encourage them to hold fast their faith. There's no way you can reason the first four chapters of Hebrews and make it match with predestination and once saved, always saved. Doesn't make logical sense. You've applied that here this morning and you know that. Um, build your foundation, know assuredly that you understand the truth and have accepted the truth and cling to that. And when you have opportunity to help others navigate through that, use Hebrews one through four. Salvation is conditional. That might be a hard thing. Salvation is conditional. All right, I want to touch on works before I close here. I think I'm down in my last two slides. Um, Jimmy started to touch on it this morning. There is nothing, or he did touch on it. There's nothing you and I could do to earn our way to heaven. There's nothing we could do to ever say, I have done all of this. I've completed the checklist. And I've earned this, God. Rather, we do works. And we do works out of necessity. And we labor, as the Hebrews writer says here, for that rest. Because we do it out of love for him. We do it out of acceptance to that which now there is there is a work of belief. Believing is, is, is work that um, we apply. But there is the work of that which is good 
um, that was given into the Corinthians or was prescribed to the, to the Corinthians. Timothy and Titus were, were both um, exhorted to do the works of an evangelist and to teach those things which they had been taught. So evangelism is a work, at least it was for them. The apostles were told to go and to preach unto all the world, so that was a work that, that was a necessity for them. If they violated that, it was a direct commandment to them. They were told to preach and teach the same things that were taught unto them to, to us. And so we have works to do. But we do those out of love. We do those out of acceptance of the fact that Christ is superior. Christianity is superior. We love his ways and we desire to stay in them. And we want to help others see the joy of living the Christian life. If works weren't essential, why encourage others to, um, to labor on? To labor toward that rest? If the work here that is being exhorted is belief alone, or if it's um, edification, or is it that edification is necessary? I stated that wrong. If the work here in chapter 4 is only that work to believe, and so we're, we're twisting the first four chapters of Hebrews to say this was written to unbelieving um, Hebrews, if that were reality and the work here was only belief, then why the exhortation to edify one another? Maybe I should have put this on my screen. Chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. I want to read them together. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily. You want to know how to keep your mind in the right place? You want to know how to continue to mature? You want to know how to continue to grow? You want to know how to continue to labor for that rest? Part of it is exhorting one another daily. Hebrews 1 through 4, was written to believers or unbelievers? It's written to believers. Was it written to Christians or to all Hebrews? It was written to Christians. Hopefully, navigating through these four, first four chapters, that just screams out to us. Scripturally and logically, is it established truth that salvation is conditional? How can anybody reason through verses, or chapters, I don't know why I keep saying verses, chapters 3 and 4, and come to any other conclusion but that salvation is conditional. And so then, if it were written to believers, if it were written to Christians who had already accepted Christ and were being encouraged and exhorted to hold fast, and it is logical as we look at the scriptures to say that um, I can influence either by my acceptance or my negligence or by my adherence to the word of God or my rebellion to it, if it's scripturally and logically true that salvation is conditional, then there's only one conclusion moving forward that I can aptly apply here. That is that I have to hold fast and keep laboring the commandments and the examples from scripture what was being delivered to the Hebrews. And then as we move into, into chapter 5, and he says there's so much more we want to tell you about Jesus, but specifically Jesus after the order of, of Melchizedek and the fact that Christianity <laughs> is superior and that since Christianity is superior, you have to grow and mature. It's, it's, hard, it's going to be hard for us to put this in a way that makes sense because you're still taking of milk at a time when you ought to be ready to teach you're still struggling with the foundation. Hold fast that which you know to be true. John 14, 15, we of course know um, Christ says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In 2 Timothy 3, 14, I already referenced to, and that was uh, the admonishment to Timothy to continue in the faith and to do those things which he had been taught. The same, same thrust and same message to us. 
I pivoted there to uh, to that because I think that's going to be important as we move now from chapters five through seven. I think there is, and, and maybe a dabble of ten, um, with Christ as the superior high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Um, these things are are I think it's better presented. Let me just put it that way. Anyway, um, my admonishment and my conclusion unto you is that if we don't already have that belief in Christ, and we haven't already accepted um, Christ's salvation, then we first and foremost have to get that. But then as the Hebrews that this was written to, I don't know why I'm struggling with words this morning, y'all forgive me. But for those to whom this was written at the time, who were Christians, the encouragement there is to hold fast. And us as readers, 2,000 years later, it's the same admonishment. You've accepted Christ. you put on Christianity. You love it. You believe it. That's why you're here this morning. You embrace it, so hold fast to it. Well, that holding fast means continuing to labor for that rest. It means there's work for me to do. And that holding fast means continuing to mature. Just like the noble Greens. I have to study to show myself approved. Just like Timothy, those things which I have been taught and or, and or I learned, I have to make application in my life. Just as Christ said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So I don't know the, the depth and breadth of the entirety of the audience. I think um, most, if not all of you, are members of the family of Christ. You are of God's family. You have accepted um, Christ and planned salvation. Nonetheless, we need to build our foundation. We need to be sure, and we need to hold fast just like those. In Hebrews, um, salvation is in Christ Jesus. There is no other way. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So we know just from that one passage that I have to hear the word of God, whether that is spoken or whether that is reasoned through with careful study. Um, I have to hear the word of God, and having heard it, I have to have faith. In other words, I have to believe it. And having heard and believed, then it is of necessity that my life aligns with that which God would have it to do. And so those things that are keeping me from being in line with him, I have to do a 180 degree turn and put those things behind me so that, as we sang this morning, Christian soldiers, you, soldiers, you keep that cross in front of you. I have to do a 180 and put those things behind me that separate me from God. That would be as simple as rebellion, not yet having accepted God's plan of salvation. Or it could be rebellion in a particular area of sin that has crept into our lives. Having heard, believed, repented, we have to be willing to confess that we believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for the remission of sins, that he is. And let me assure you, he is superior. We've studied that enough in Hebrews for it to just glare out to us. Having heard, believed, willing to, to have been repented and being willing to confess that Christ is, then we have to be baptized for the remission of sins. Not going to be able to, to go into the depths of what I want to share maybe there, but um, there's, there's a lesson we can draw out in those first four chapters and the things that we just said. And logically trying to make application of predestination um, in the essence that I can't do anything and once saved always saved if those things were reality or if I'm true and honest with myself as I study they don't make sense there's a learning there for us to study the Bible with an open heart and an open mind to see what the Bible presents as truth and not trying to make it prove that which I already believe that is a fallacy and a difficulty right let me dabble just for a moment if I set out with the thesis that 2 plus 2 equals 5, and I sought out a way to prove that, you're, you're already looking at me like, why in the world would you do that? It doesn't make any sense. Well, if I put apples in front of me and I had 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 apples, nope. My thesis is 2 plus 2 equals 5, so here's 2. Doesn't match up. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll just cut one of these apples I'll cut two of these apples into fourths each, and then I'll just put one together with eight pieces. Now, how many apples do I have? I still have five apples. I moved in it with the preconceived idea that I wanted to make it fit my belief, and we all recognize that silliness. 
So if that's silliness, why do we reason through the first four chapters of Hebrews or the Bible itself and try to make it match which, that which I believe? Please don't do that. Read and study the Bible. Take these verses right here on this screen and see if it is reality that this is God's plan for man to be saved. And if it is, why in the world do I, ne do I neglect and fight against baptism being for the remission of sins? Why is it difficult to accept that baptism doth now save us? It shouldn't. Please accept the truth. Um, keep it in context. Compare similar verses and, and see the reality of God's word and accept it that way. Finally, um, we're fond of quoting Revelation 2.10. Maybe we need to move down to Revelation 2.20. But hold fast, continue in that which is uh, prescribed. Keep my commandments. Live thou faithfully until the end, Revelation 2.10. And we will inherit a crown of life. We have to strive to live in the way that God would have us to live. One saved always what saved doesn't fit. Doesn't fit in Hebrews. Doesn't fit in Revelation. So please don't try to prove it out any other way. Accept God's word for what it is. That's God's plan of salvation. It's pretty simple. It really is. If I want to be a Christian, why not just do what those in the first century did? Hear, believe, confess, repent, be baptized for the remission of sin, and then strive to live faithfully. How did they strive to live faithfully? They carried on the apostles' doctrine. They went day by day, breaking bread in houses. In other words, they had fellowship together, but they taught, they shared that which they knew, and they embraced it, and they loved it, and they lived the, the lifestyle, and the church grew, grew, grew quickly in the first century. How do we make it grow in the 21st century? Embrace it. Hold fast. Preach it, teach it, keep the commandments. All right, I've kept you way too long. Went longer than I should have. I appreciate you sticking with it because um, it, I think it's critical. It is critical that we really understand how to how the first four chapters, who it was written to, who the book of Hebrews was written to, and if it were written to Christians, then we look back on chapters one through four, and then we make application of well, then what does he mean by take heed, hold fast? What does he mean by brethren? It was written to Christians, and they were being exhorted to um, to keep that which they knew and to not give it up. Please don't give up your salvation. If you're already here this morning, you're a child of God, you've accepted God's plan of salvation, you have a special advocate, you have a blessing with the Father to be able to go before Him, whether it's silently in prayer, if it's something that only you know um, and it is keeping you from being in a right relationship with God, make it right. Stop doing it. Go to God in prayer. Ask for forgiveness and repent. If it has brought reproach and shame upon the church, if it's broadly known, if it's known by more than one individual, as Barney Fife would say, nip it in the bud. Stop it right here. Repent. Turn from it. Maybe that wasn't a good application of my Lord's invitation. I'm sorry. <clears throat> Come back to that which you knew to be true. Hold fast that which you love. If anybody here has a need to respond to the Lord's invitation, please come forward as we stand.